Amen. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, turn with me to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs we have this morning and then two more sermons in Proverbs. Uh, We'll be concluding this on the first Sunday of July. I've saved a few that I was most excited about here towards the end. And I'm uh, really looking forward to spending the next few weeks with you to talk about what God has to say about some very practical areas of our life. When we, when we began this series, uh, the first message that I preached was about the book of Proverbs as a whole. And I said one of my goals in preaching Proverbs was I wanted you to see God in every area of your life. I wanted you to take some areas of your life which might be rather godless. And what I, what I mean by that is not that they're just openly pagan and sinful, but areas in which you're not thinking about God. Significant areas of your life, daily areas, everyday mundane things in which you're not just thinking about the Lord at all. And the book of Proverbs uniquely shows us that God wants to be a part of every area of your life. And he has something to say about every area of your life. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Now, that verse teaches us a lot. It teaches us, first of all, that God's expectation is that we would live for the reason for which we've been created, which we can only do when we've come into a right relationship with God by trusting Jesus Christ, that our lives would glorify him, our lives would manifest him, that people would see Christ through the way in which we live, and that we would find our great joy in our closeness to Jesus Christ. But that verse also teaches us that it's possible to do everything for God's glory. Isn't that an amazing thought? That everything we do, it's possible. Even the most mundane task of our life can be done for God's glory in a way that displays Christ. And the example that's given there in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 is that whatever we do, even if we eat and drink, do even that for the glory of God. You say, well, how in the world can you eat and drink for the glory of God? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because that's what I want to answer this morning from the book of Proverbs. When I was reading through Proverbs and trying to to look after those first nine chapters, which we walked through verse by verse, looking at the topics towards the end, one of the things that surprised me is the amount of verses there about eating and drinking. Proverbs really teaches us how to eat and drink for the glory of God. And we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible addresses this issue. This is a big issue in our life, isn't it? Eating and drinking can be the source of some of our greatest joys. It can be the source of some of our greatest sorrows. It can be kind of an experience in the times of our greatest victories and celebrations. It can also be a source of of great discouragement and defeat. And I don't know why it is that sometimes we take areas like this so significant to our life and just assume God has nothing to say about it. I assure you, God has a lot to say about our eating and drinking. I was telling somebody this week that I was preaching on eating and drinking uh, from Proverbs. And they said, there's a whole sermon on that? And the truth is, there's three or four sermons on that. I'm not going to give them to you, but uh, the reality is the more I think about this, the more I think this is something we need to talk about a little bit more. It's it's hard uh, to do what we've been doing, which is find one key passage in Proverbs and then kind of launch from that. Uh, We're going to look at a bunch of different Proverbs. But what I want to do is I want to give you three primary truths about what God says about how to eat and drink for his glory. How to eat and drink in a way that not only brings you joy and gladness, that not only ministers to others, but reflects him and his joy and his affection for you and for others. The first one is this. Proverbs teaches us that we need to enjoy God's gifts. 
enjoy God's gifts, primarily the gifts of food and drink. God wants us to enjoy that. And he wants us to be reminded that they're a gift. It is important to be reminded that every time that we eat something or every time we have something to drink, that is a gift from God. And one of the ways in which God has created us to be dependent creatures is we need to eat and drink. We also need to sleep. Every time you go to bed at night and you start to fall asleep, it's a reminder that you can't do it on your own. You need God. You are not sufficient. And every time we eat or drink, it's a reminder that we need something. And we need something that God provides Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, we looked at this text in detail when we talked about money, which is this prayer that God would give us exactly what we need, not too much and not too little. And in Proverbs 30, verse 8, the prayer is, Lord, feed me what is needful for me. This recognition that we are dependent upon God for our food. And so, God, would you give me what I need? The Lord's prayer teaches us to pray. Give us this day our, our daily bread. Now, I think that prayer is lost on many of us. I think we, in our culture, because all of us have fridges filled with food and abundant options of where we could go eat after this, which I hope in this sermon you're not thinking about, just wait. But because of that, the idea of, Lord, I need daily bread might be lost upon us. But to many around the world, that's not lost upon them. They wake up in the morning and pray for daily bread. They say, God, I need you to give me what I need for today. There are three million children in the world that die every year for the lack of food. And so there are parents out there this morning that are saying, Lord, I need daily bread. Lord, I don't know. I have no understanding, humanly speaking, of how we're going to eat today. So I need daily bread from you. But God wants us to look at every meal and acknowledge his faithfulness in giving that to us. In Deuteronomy 8.10, God is preparing his people to go into the promised land. And he says this, when you have eaten and are satisfied. And so here they have been in the wilderness just eating manna. He said, someday you're going to get to the promised land and you're going to eat in abundance. So here's what he says. When you get there and you eat and you're satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he's given you. And the reality is when they got there, they forgot him. And he said, I want you to remember me. And one of the ways that you remember God is every time we have something to eat or drink, it's a reminder that God gave it to us and we need it desperately. It's kind of a constant reminder of just God's gracious love. I think about Hudson Taylor, the great uh, 19th century missionary to China who depended upon the Lord in miraculous ways for him to have something to eat. And in that context, he said this, listen, he said, it is not difficult for me to remember that my little ones, my children, need breakfast in the morning, dinner at midday, and something before they go to bed at night. Indeed, I could not forget it. In the same way, I find it impossible to suppose that our Heavenly Father is less tender or mindful than I am. I do not believe that our Heavenly Father will ever forget his redeemed children. So every time we eat, it's a reminder that there's a God that loves us and cares for us and has provided for us. And this is the reason we pray before we eat. Psalm 69.30 says this. This is a great verse for praying before you eat. Magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. So when we give thanks to God for something, it magnifies him. It exalts him. By giving thanks, what we're saying is, God, this came from you. This didn't come from me. This came from you. And so I'm giving you the glory for this. When we sit down to eat... Let me just give you this little practical homework from the sermon today. Next time you pray before you eat, don't just give that prayer you always give before you eat, right? 
Don't just give that same old prayer. Stop and acknowledge that what we're doing here is a gift from God. The meal, the people that are present, everything that is here is a gift from a loving and caring God. And every time we eat is to be a reminder that there's a heavenly father that knows exactly what we need. He loves us deeply. He cares for us. And he has a promise to provide every need that we have. That's what we're supposed to receive when we receive that meal, a spirit and a heart of thanksgiving. But this is important. Yes, one of the ways we glorify God with eating and drinking is by giving him thanks and stopping and acknowledging, God, we are really blessed. <laughs> you have given us an abundance. You, prov- you, you promised to give us what we need. God, we have so much more than what we need. And so we glorify him by giving thanks. But one of the things the Proverbs teaches us is that food is not just about sustenance. Food is not just about keeping us alive. Food is not just what is necessary for us to function every day. There's something more to that. God has created food in such a way that we glorify him, listen, by both enjoying a great meal and enjoying the taste of the food. Amazed how much the Proverbs teaches us about this. I mean, just think about the Old Testament. God ordained for his people, like put on the calendar and established a law that his people should have seven feasts a year. God loves to feast. We got an amen for feasting. Listen, everything is communicating to us the heart of God. So if God is the one who created seven feasts a year where the people for a week would stop their work and eat and celebrate and drink and sing and play, what does that tell you about the heart of God? It tells you that God loves when we stop and we enjoy a meal with other people. When we stop and we celebrate the goodness of God, when we take the time to prepare something that is good and to enjoy every flavor and every taste that God has ordained. My father-in-law, whom I love, I texted this morning, thanked him for his investment in my life, loves food and he loves meals. Uh, My kids are here, they will all acknowledge this. And, and something strange about this, he loves to take pictures of his meals. And so if you were to follow him on Facebook, it would be like two pictures of family, a food picture, 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 picture of family, and then five more food pictures. Every meal he takes a picture of. When we have as a meal of family, before we eat, we pray, and then take a picture of the meal. I just came back a little week from them. We took multiple pictures of meals. So I had an idea last Christmas that I would text all of the siblings and say, text me any pictures you have of dad and food. I made a 67 page Shutterfly book of pictures of my father-in-law and food. 60, it cost me like 150 bucks, 67 pages. And I mean like six pictures on a page and all him and food. But, But here's what I realized as I was putting that together. It's not just that he loves food, although he does. He loves flavors and tastes, and he loves to make food and prepare food. He loves what it represents. He loves the family being together. He loves a meal. He loves a celebration. He loves a party. He loves a feast. This is exactly what we see in the heart of God. Just think about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 tells us that the consummation of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have a sense, as Paul says, only been betrothed to him now, but the consummation of our relationship with Jesus will be at that marriage celebration, and there we will eat and feast with him, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what it prophesies in Isaiah 25. It says this, Isaiah 25, six through nine. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. Tells us two things. Not only will there be a feast, but the food will be good. We will love the food. We will celebrate the food. We will enjoy the taste. God is preparing a meal of rich food and well-aged wine refined for us. God is preparing this meal for us. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in John 14. And someday you will come to me in that place and we will feast together in eternity with him. Think about the joy that is there. I mean, God could have sustained us in a thousand ways. He could have sustained us with IVs, with, with dried food packets, right? He, he could have just given us tasteless things. And it would have been fine. I mean, we could have just had food as the means by which we survive, and it's just tasteless, and we just do it. But instead of that, God gave us about 10,000 taste buds. Did you hear that? God gave us like 10,000 taste buds and innumerable amount of, of flavors in the world. Why? Because tastes are like a sunset. Tastes are like leaves that change in the fall. Tastes are like waves that crash into the ocean. Taste, uh, taste is like a mountain range in a national park. All of it is given glory to God. And so yesterday, our family went out and we picked some blueberries. And you just, you look at this little thing that, that grows on a tree. And you put it in your mouth and it explodes with flavor. And you say, why? Because God just wanted to give us a good gift. Right after I graduated high, uh, college, I, I went to Central Europe for a couple of years. And this is the first time that I experienced this strange phenomenon that we don't experience much in America. And that is that you only get certain fruits in its seasons. Right? And so my first spring there is about April, May. You started to go into the markets and you would see these tables overflowing. It's hard to even express with cherries, with cherries. Now, I never had cherries before. I didn't care anything about cherries. I had the ones on the top of the Sunday, but not one with the pit in it, the dark red cherries. And so I got cherries and I ate them and I'd never tasted anything that great. And it just exploded with flavor and they were right in season. And then you know what? You didn't get them for a year. And then next year, you just waited for cherry season, and you went to the store, and you got cherries right when they were supposed to be. Who created that? Who made that to exist? Who made seasons and fruits in their seasons that we would enjoy it, and then anticipate it for a year, and then feast on it again? God has done that for his glory. Proverbs 24, 13 says, eat honey, for it's good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to the taste. The point is that you should enjoy a good meal. You should savor the taste and the smells and the sight of food. You should prepare these kind of meals and stop and not just thank God that it exists, but thank God that there is such thing as good food and taste buds that you can enjoy. What a gift from God. And so the Proverbs teaches us enjoy God's gift of tastes and meals and celebrations and food. Now, I had a little bit of a struggle when I was studying this, and I didn't know exactly how to navigate it or to address it in this specific context. And so I invited two pastors in my office, one of our youngest pastors and one of our more seasoned pastors. And uh, I asked them to come, and I said, guys, here's what I'm struggling with. Uh, I don't know how to communicate this, and I explained it to them. And I said, here's the problem. If I don't talk about this, they're going to notice 
And the reason they come to Prince is because we preach the word of God and we don't skip stuff. And, and they're going to know that I'm, I'm wimping out on this issue. And so what do I do? And, and, and we talked about it and they said, just say what the Bible says. Great advice. I could have done that without calling them in. But <laughs> say what the Bible says. So I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. All right. Everything I just said to you about food, about the joy and the celebration and the taste, are all things that are also said about wine. It's been nice being your pastor. God bless you. Bless you. <laughs> I have, I didn't, nobody threatened to fire me after the first service, so just hold on just a minute. So you have to say this because it's all over the place. Like, when God made the promises to his people in the promised land, he promised them the joy of abundant wine. And then, and then at, the, at, the, um, at the last supper, Jesus sat with his disciples and they, and they had wine. And, and then at the marriage supper of the lamb, he has promised us this well-aged wine. And all throughout scripture, you see the centrality of, of wine in the ministry of, of God to his people and a sign of his blessing and a sign of his provision and, and a sign of joy. And listen to this, there are multiple places in the prophetic literature, Isaiah and Jeremiah, where it will say that because of the people's rebellion, God will withhold the fruit of the vine. It's like a curse for the people of God because they haven't been faithful that God would withhold this. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7 calls us to give wine to those who are sick, listen, and to the sorrowful of heart. I could give you 30 verses about this. This is one of the other sermons that I could preach and probably should at some point. But just listen to this. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Baptists love the first part of this passage, but not the last. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And so God just uses that as a, as a sign of, of the blessing that he wants to put upon our lives. Listen to this. Not in the Proverbs, but I want you to hear this. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. Listen. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. Lord, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he might bring forth food from the earth. Lord, you're the one that does this. You cause the grass to grow. You sustain the livestock. You provide that for food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. And you provide oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen a man's heart. So all of these verses that you see about the joy and the provision of food is, is also said throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, also of wine. And the reason I wanted to stop and say that right here, I carefully thought about at what point to say that, is because it's really important to say that between the first point and the next point I'm about to make. Because the first point is to enjoy God's gifts. The second point I want to make is this, avoid the abuses. Avoid the abuses. So God tells us that food and drink have been given to us for enjoy. So we enjoy God's gifts. We, we enjoy a good meal and, and fellowship with others through it. But then we avoid the abuses. We are continually war warned in the book of Proverbs to avoid the abuses, listen, of both food and wine. Just think about this. Think about the massive falls in the Bible because of food and wine. Adam and Eve couldn't control their taste and their appetites. And so they, they ate. Think about Esau who sold his birthright for, for a bowl of stew. I think about the time in which Eli's sons, the prophet Eli, 
were supposed to take the animal sacrifices and sacrifice the best of the meat to the Lord, but then withhold a little bit for themselves. But what happened is the Lord discovered that they were taking the best part for themselves and eating that because they wanted the best and giving the leftovers for the Lord, and God killed them for it, Eli's sons. So they lost their life because they couldn't control their appetites with food. But just think about Noah. After his greatest moment, I mean, one of the greatest moments in the Bible, an unbelievable amount of faith for over 100 years building the ark, he gets off the ark and he gets drunk. And he's totally shamed. It is an incredibly embarrassing moment. And Lot did the same thing. He was totally shamed because of his, his drunkenness. And then think about 1 Corinthians. One of the, this is another one of the sermons we could preach. The context of the Lord's Supper in the early church was around a meal. They had been used to feasts and celebrations. So when they took the Lord's Supper, they didn't do what we're about to do. Like this, you know, they, they feasted and they had a, and in the midst of all of that, they had wine and they had bread and they celebrated the Lord's Supper. But listen, there were people that were being cursed by God and killed because they were disgracing the Lord's Supper by getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. So their abuse of wine was destroying the church. It was destroying the testimony of the people of God in the community because of the way in which they were abusing that which God intended to be a good gift. And in the book of Proverbs, drunkenness and gluttony are seen as equally sinful and disgraceful. Listen to Proverbs 23, 20 and 21. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Isn't it interesting how loud we have been about the abuse of alcohol, but pretty quiet about the abuse of food? Both of them are, are sin, and both of them can have devastating effects on your life. Both abuses can have devastating effects on your life. I think it's important here to say this, though. There is one of these that can have a greater devastating effect on your life than the other. One of the most devastating things in our culture is the abuse of alcohol. There are families and marriages being torn apart. It is without question one of the biggest issues in our society. There was a time in my ministry about 15 years ago where a bunch of really famous pastors were kind of getting you know, liberated from this idea that you couldn't partake of alcohol and were starting to openly talk about how they partook of alcohol. And the reason it made me so angry is because as a pastor, I know that every time I get up and preach, there is someone in the audience that watched their daddy beat their mama because of alcohol. And I know there's someone that saw dad leave or, or mom leave or mom not able to get out of bed in the morning because they had abused alcohol. I know that there are children who have experienced it. I know that there's mamas in the room who had a child die from a drunk driver. And I don't know how any pastor gets up and is trite about something like this. There is something sobering about the abuse of alcohol. 37 people die a day in America from drunk driving accidents. 140,000 people die a year from excessive alcohol use. So both have devastating effects. One would have more devastating effects than the other. And yet Proverbs over and over comes back to this and says gluttony and drunkenness are both seen as equally foolish. Proverbs 28, 7. A companion of gluttons disgraces his father. Proverbs 23, 2. Put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. Control your appetites. Proverbs 25, 16. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit. And the issue is the issue of self-control. 
And so what if on one hand, God has given us these incredible gifts to remind us of his provision, to remind us of his creativity, to remind us of his joy, to remind us of his desire to be with us, like all of these good things, but also to be a means by which we develop that which is probably the most important character quality for any follower of Jesus Christ, and that is self-control. What if God said, I want to give you these gifts and I want them to be used in your life as a means to develop self-control. Not only self-control of fruit of the Spirit, but in many ways is the foundation of everything God wants to do in your life. If there is no self-control, there will be no growth in holiness. So that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. I control my appetites. I control my desires and my longings, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. And self-control begets self-control. So if we're controlled in one area, it helps us to be self-controlled in another area. If we're not self-controlled in certain areas, that will influence other areas of our life. And so God has given us this gift to teach us the need to control ourselves. And how often have things like food and drink, listen, stolen the hearts of people? How often do we find that food and drink sucks away our energy, the energy that God has given us to be used for his glory, to do the things God has called us to do? It has led us into foolishness. It has lost our effectiveness. We have destroyed our health. Even our affections for God, our love for God, are diminished by the abuse of food and drink. This is why Jonathan Edwards, who, known for many things, but probably most of all, if you know him well, uh, for his self-control, in one of his resolutions said this, I am resolved, listen to this, listen to how unusual this is for our day, to maintain the strictest temperance, self-control in eating and drinking. I am resolved to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. This is a man who knew that we could eat and drink for the glory of God. So I'm resolved before I go to bed at night, I wanna think to myself, have I acted in the best way I possibly could with regard to eating and drinking. I want to say something here about how much more careful we need to be with these warnings than, than they were. I did a deep dive of this uh, over the last few weeks and thinking about alcohol in biblical times. So uh, there's a lot of reasons for this, but uh, wine in biblical times was at the very least diluted three parts water and one part uh, fermented grapes, okay? At the least three to one. There's a lot of reasons for that. There was a bitterness issue that needed to be dealt with with the water. But most scholars would say that most people drink wine uh, at about 11 to one ratio. Uh, 11 meaning uh, 11 parts water to one part uh, alcohol. Now what that meant is that wine in biblical times had an alcohol content of about 3%. Okay, alcohol content of 3%. Today, wine has an alcohol content of 14%. So think about this. If there was these strong warnings to be careful to not abuse a drink that had 3% alcohol, how much more would we need to take that warning with a drink that has 14% alcohol? And think about this. They didn't even know anything this, in these days about distilled alcohol that the bourbons and the whiskeys that have 40% alcohol level, they knew nothing of that. So listen, if they're saying be dramatically careful and controlled in the way in which you partake of alcohol, they were saying that to those who had a beverage with 3% alcohol level, what do you think that says to those of us who might be partaking of something with 15 to 40% alcohol? 
So I'm not saying the Bible teaches abstinence. I'm telling you it teaches very much care and thought. But it also says that if you thought the warnings were significant then, how much more are those warnings now? But listen, it's the same with food. They also knew nothing of our genetically modified processed junk that we put into our bodies. They knew nothing of fast food. They knew nothing of all of this highly processed stuff. And so in the same way, if there are these warnings, be careful of your body, don't be gluttonous. For those that knew nothing about the processed foods, how much more carefully should we take that warning today when the stuff that we're eating has so much junk in it? So I just want to say to you that when we read the warnings to avoid the abuses, we need to take them 10 times more seriously than they would have taken them because of what we're given today in the area of food and drink. Let me tell you how this how the sermon works. The sermon works fun part, enjoy food and drink, okay? Heavy part, avoid the abuses, and then fun part again. All right, you ready? So I'm going to end with a fun part. So it teaches us to enjoy God's gifts, to avoid the abuses. Here's the last thing. Pursue its usefulness. The usefulness of food and drink. Pursue it. This should be an active part of your life, pursuing God's usefulness with food and, and drink. There should be something really enjoyable about this. There are so many good and godly and important uses for food and drink, really in a way that nothing else can provide. There's things that can happen around the table. There's things that can happen when food is present that can't happen in any other context. First of all, we, we have the, the usefulness of generosity. Proverbs 22.9 says, he who is generous will be blessed. For he gives some of his food to the poor. What an opportunity to, to use the food that we have to, to bless others. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. It's one of the primary ways that we can bless others is with the overabundance of food that we have. Generosity. But also hospitality. The usefulness of food to invite people to eat. All of Proverbs 1 through 9 is, is two competing invitations to eat. And these are metaphors of the life that we have with Christ. But it's interesting how these metaphors that we've given about folly and wisdom calling for us are calling in the context of an invitation to a meal. Because there's just something about the invitation to a meal that is significant. It's a picture of the power of, of hospitality. Romans 12, 13 says this, contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Not only do it, but be happy about it. Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality. Why? Listen to this. Because sitting down at a meal and blessing others with a meal that you've prepared is distinctively Christian. It is one of the greatest pictures of the kingdom of God that you can get. One of, if, if we are to be the visible presence of Jesus in our community, one of the greatest ways that we can manifest Jesus is through sharing a meal. Is through inviting someone into our home and, and blessing them with something we've prepared for them. And just think about the usefulness in our relationships. Food is, is such a great way to gather friends and, and family, and this should be frequent. I read an article two weeks ago in thinking about this sermon. It's a medical journal that said that less than 30% of families share a family meal every week. 
Less than 30% of families share a family meal. And then the rest of the article went to show the documented physical and emotional benefits of having a meal together. And I just, I kind of love and hate both. It's kind of cynical towards it. But like when, when science finally figures something out that the Bible said thousands of years ago. Listen to me. God has ordained it so that one of the greatest ways that we build relationships with others is we put our phones down, we sit, we don't hurry to get up, we get a meal, we put it on the table, and we just sit there and eat. You know why? Because without the food, it'd just be weird. <laughs> like, what if you invited me to your house and there was no food, you just wanted to sit around a table for an hour? That's weird. I want food if you invite me to your house. But I'm just saying, doesn't that change everything? Here's an empty table with a bunch of chairs. That's weird. Food on it, it's ready to celebrate. And so this idea of food being a means by which we gather with friends and family and we enjoy one another and we just sit. I was thinking this morning, there's kind of a joke about Baptists that if, you're, if you, you, somebody in your family dies, someone will bring you a casserole from a Baptist church, you know, but, but listen to this. I've been to so many funerals where after one of the hardest moments of someone's life and we're burying a loved one, you go to a meal afterwards and it's just healing. Not because of the food. Generally, those things, the food's not that good. <laughs> it's because the gathering of family and friends around a meal heals your soul. That's the power of a meal. And so I'm saying in pursuing the usefulness of food, use food and drink as a means to which to gather and to bless people and to cultivate relationships. And then last of all, the usefulness in evangelism. This was one of Jesus's primary evangelistic tools. People will often say that if you will trace Jesus's life through the gospels, he's either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming back from a meal. He was always eating. You know why? Because just sitting down and talking with someone, or maybe just saying something to someone feels very different than saying to someone, I want to come eat with you. And so he says to Matthew, let's have a party at your house. He says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I don't want you to just see me. I want to sit down with you. And he says to Martha and Mary and Lazarus, I, I, want, I want your house to be a little home base for me. And I want us to share meals together. And the love that Jesus had for these people is love that was cultivated around the dinner table. And so it is that Jesus used food and drink to be a primary method of evangelism to reach people. And think about just the ministry of Jesus. It says in Luke 7 that Jesus came eating and drinking. They said he was a glutton. He came to eat and to drink. And think about this. The night before he was betrayed, what was he doing with his disciples? Eating. Right before his ascension, what was he doing with his disciples? Eating. When he left his disciples, he promised that one day we will get together and we will eat. This is the heart of Christ. I think the reason is because there's something about a meal, listen carefully, there's something about a meal that reminds us that God loves to be with us. He enjoys our company. He's not bothered by us. He's not rushed. That what we see when Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and when we see Jesus sit at so many meals, what it says to us is Jesus really enjoys time with you. He enjoys to just be with you. And not only has he given us this gift of food to enjoy the flavors and the taste and to celebrate this and to have glad hearts, but it is a part of our vision here at, at Prince is to enjoy God's presence. One of the primary ways in which we enjoy the presence of God is in the company of God and others around a table for a meal. 
Listen to this verse and we'll be done. Revelation 3.20 says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If you changed one word about that verse, the whole thing changes. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and meet with him and he with me. That changes the whole verse. That feels like you've come to the pastor's office and there's two chairs here and the pastor's sitting here and you've just come to meet. Jesus said, if you open the door of your heart, I don't want to come meet with you. I want to come and eat with you. Doesn't that change the whole heart of God? Doesn't that change everything that God wants to say to us? What he's saying is, no, just stop. Don't be hurried. Put down your phone and let's enjoy time together around a meal. The point is that Jesus wants that kind of time with us, that he enjoys us and he longs for that with us. It's communicating the heart of God and his enjoyment of you. And so take this in your hand this morning. This points us to everything we just talked about. This points us to the fact, listen, that Jesus not only gathered with his disciples and they had bread and they had wine and they rejoiced together, but it pictures to us that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. Why? Listen, because Jesus wanted to eat with you. He wanted to feast with you in eternity. He says, if you hear me knocking, the reason I'm knocking is because I want to come in and sit and eat. I want to enjoy time with you. And so what this says right here is that Jesus Christ died to have that time with you. He died to enjoy that fellowship with you. And he died so that you could have that fellowship with one another. He died so that you could have genuine communion around a table with one another. He died so that you would know that one of the greatest blessings in all of life is sitting at a table with a great meal with friends and family and the presence of God. That's what this says to us. Before we take it, let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment.